Though I'm an employee of Ronald Blue Trust, Talking Money represents my individual views and not those of my employer or any sponsor of the program. During the program, I may discuss market trends as well as specific financial planning techniques and investment ideas. These discussions are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations to any individual or organization. Work with your attorney or accounting or investment professional for specific individual advice and services. Any securities or investment products discussed on Talking Money are not insured by the FDIC, are not a deposit or other obligation of or guaranteed by any bank, and are subject to investment risks, including possible loss of principal amount invested. Good morning and welcome to Talking Money. This is Certified Financial Planner Professional Mike Miller, your host for Talking Money this weekend, every week about this time. So we are live in the studio. So we want to ask, have you ask and have us answer your questions. Had a great uh, session last couple of weeks on Social Security. If uh, And Eddie Holland from my office was uh, my guest and had a lot of a lot of great callers last week and got your questions answered, I think, and covered a lot of great material on Social Security. There's so much misinformation out there about that on the radio and otherwise. So we want to make sure you get the right kind of information. If you happen to miss that, you can go to TalkingMoneyRadio.com, TalkingMoneyRadio.com, and just click on the, the Listen Now, and you'll be able to get to that particular program, plus uh, many others that uh, you might have an interest in listening to. But Always keep in mind, this is not a sales show. We're not trying to sell you insurance, annuities, anything like that. This is information. We want to have make sure you have the information you need to make the right kinds of decisions about money. So maybe you've got some concerns about uh, the stock market these days and the economy with uh, Russia invading Ukraine, uh, even though we see uh, some people trying to say it's all a hoax and it's just uh, they're just putting up, uh, I guess, fake video or something. Uh, I don't believe that. I think it's really happening over there. In this day and age of uh, cell phones, iPhones everywhere, it's it's hard to hide anything these days. But you've got some concern about that. Uh, this is you, You've come to the right place today. So Mark Elam, our senior investment strategist uh, with Ronald Blue Trust in Atlanta, joins me once again as he's been here many times on the microphone to help us weed through and make sense of what's going on in the economy, the markets, and so forth. So welcome once again to the microphone, Mark. Yeah, it's great to be here. Love Greenville. But so glad you're with us again today because it's always a pleasure to, to try to unpack some of this stuff with you. And uh, but we did have a listener. Before we get to the Ukraine and all the other market things, we also want to talk about some private uh, credit, private equity investments that um, many people should be considering as a part of their portfolio to help diversify and and hope, hopefully also increase the uh, the rate of return over time. But diversification is a big deal with this and gets you away from the, the public markets and get you into some of the private markets. But we had a listener that uh, I, I put this off until Mark got here so he can answer the question on the air. So a listener sent in the question asking about the difference between CDs and treasuries. I know a lot of people get confused about that. Uh, so what's the difference between a CD and a treasury? Okay, easy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, CDs. We think it's easy. Not everybody else that's thinks it's true. so easy. We, we look at this every day. So certificate of deposit, that's what CD stands for. We love acronyms in the investment business. It confuses people and helps helps make it uh, hard so we so we can make a living uh, helping people, right? right. So <laughs> CDs, certificates of deposit, are typically issued by banks, credit unions. They they want to take in money that they can loan out to uh, people that borrow money, but and they'll pay you interest for that uh, for that for that certificate of deposit. So the use so, of their money. They're paying you for the use of your money. Paying paying you. And yeah. not so much, uh, not very very high interest <laughs> rates these days, but that's uh, that's going to be changing here. Those are typically invest or, uh, in, insured by the FDIC up to $250,000. That was a result of the Great Depression where people lost their money in banks when those banks failed. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the government's addressed that with its insurance program, and it's great that uh, that those CDs are backed by the government. So treasuries, treasury bills, treasury notes, treasury bonds are directly issued by the U.S. government. They are loans. Again, they want the use of your money. They will pay you interest for that while they spend money on defense uh, programs, whatever. It's not really easy for individuals to own treasuries. They typically own treasuries inside of a mutual fund or an exchange-traded yeah. fund. But um, and there's but you can't buy them directly at the bank. The, at the not so much certain banks. Yeah, not so much. Um, you could buy them in a brokerage account, but uh, I see people more you know investing in a fund that holds treasuries. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, treasury bills just educationally uh, are maturities less than a year. Treasury notes have a term of two to ten years, and then treasury bonds are greater than ten years. So just different vernacular for different kinds of loans or investments from the from the government so which one's safer they're all safe as safe as the government because the government <laughs> owns the printing press they right. can they can they can pay you back with uh, bills that they print off uh, so they are all backed by the full faith and credit of the u.s government okay so let's talk about the difference though in cds you buy a cd and today it feels like you're paying them to hold it as opposed to them paying you but let's say you get half percent or percent whatever it is you're getting and you hold that for three years, uh, you get the money out. The the dis the disadvantage to that would be if you want to get it out early, they have an early surrender penalty to get That's it out. That's true. So with the Treasury, though, it, it works differently than that if you want to get your money out. So That's talk right. talk about that a little bit. Treasuries are completely liquid. You could, uh, I thought I wanted to buy a Treasury note and hold it for five years, and guess what? I need the money, so I can, I can sell that mm-hmm. through a brokerage firm or whatever and get my money out on a kind of a next-day basis. CD penalties you pretty much have to hold it until for the term whether that's 30 days six months three years whatever yeah some banks have uh, some special exceptions for seniors and things and inside there to to try to keep them there i guess to keep those penalties away but uh, so the uh, and let's talk about the risk involved whether it's a it's a treasury uh, bill which is the shorter ones and then you've got the notes which are a little longer maturity kind of a medium term and then the bonds which are longer term um, what's the difference? Because I would say, well, I, I want to buy this twenty-year um, bond because it's paying you know, more. a percent more than yeah. the other one was. So, what's what's my drawback to that? Well, the risk, if we we put it that way, which means the fluctuation in the re- the return, the fluctuation in the value, the longer the term of that treasury note bond or whatever, the more you're susceptible to interest rates changing. So, say if I buy a three percent five-year treasury note. Um, and what, guess what? Rates go up to 4%, 5%. Now the value of that note, if I wanted to sell it before maturity, is going to go down a little bit yes. because guess what? It's not as good as a current sure. 5% note. Why would somebody I, buy your 4% yeah, if they can get I, a new one for 5 Exactly. Yeah. But on the other hand, if I say, well, you know what? I'm not, I don't need to sell it. I'm just going to hold it to maturity. Well, then that value will come right back to where it was, right back to 100%, and you'll get all your money back. So there's no risk. There's no decline in value if you're willing to kind of hold it to hold maturity. It. Yeah. So um, that that same concept applies a little bit between buying bonds, uh, even corporate bonds, let's say, in a mutual fund versus you buying a laddered portfolio, let's say, of, of a number of individual bonds that mature at different times. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, what are some of the advantages of doing it in 
a laddered versus doing a, yeah, a bond uh, mutual fund. Yeah, staggering maturities, buying a one year, a two year, a three year, five year, say on out to 10 years. You can buy those bonds and say, you know what, I'm indifferent to what interest rates do because I'm just going to hold this to maturity. Mm -hmm. And then every year as those bonds mature, I'll reinvest into new bonds. And I don't really care what interest rates do. If they go up, they go down, the value of those bonds, I know they're going to come back to, to par to mm -hmm. 100% right. and I'll be paid off. Whereas in a, in a bond fund, um, that's going to go up and down based on the overall interest rate environment. And there's no guarantee that you're going to get what you paid for in that fund when you made your initial investment. So there's a little bit more what we call principal risk, fluctuation in value in a bond fund than there is in owning those individual bonds. So one of the reasons that I've always told clients that maybe an advantage to buy the bond fund is because that bond fund meant two reasons. One, he can generally buy the bonds less expensively than you can buy a that's, small portfolio of bonds. That's right. And then he's going to diversify it. I guess that's three. And then the <laughs> third thing would be um, that they're going to actively buy and sell those bonds inside there. So as you see, the the price of a bond may go up and it's, it's selling at a premium but it's going to mature in two years. They may want to go ahead and sell that now because they know over the next two years they're going to lose that premium as it goes back to par by maturity. So the um, the fee that they charge in there, which generally is fairly inexpensive on a bond fund, the idea that that fee is going to be made up um, by and get you back more return because of how they manage the bonds. I mean, that's the concept. Anyway. Exactly. Yeah, the diversification in a bond fund, the active management the, uh, the, the better prices that that bond manager can get because he, he's buying big blocks of bonds bigger right. than you're going to be able to buy individually. Yeah. Yeah. There are advantages and um, in, in that bond fund. Yeah, I've seen uh, statements where somebody showed me their statement showed what the bond fund, but the bond, individual bond, was currently priced at. And I said, oh, you be careful with that because they're pricing that just based on the general bond market. You're probably not going to get that price because you've only got a $50,000 bond. That's right. So you're going to, you're going to take a hit on that. So, and, and people don't understand that. They think, oh no, I'm, that's the price I get. It's no, that's, it's priced differently there. So all those inside things that, that you're not always made aware of as you're dealing with uh, bond fund managers or, or uh, stockbrokers and those kinds. All right. When we get back from the break. We're going to talk, uh, start talking about the, uh, not What's so going much on? fun thing to talk about inflation and, and Russia and all that kind of stuff. But if you've got a question about all that stuff, you've got a concern, a question, we'd love to hear from you. You'll have to send me a, a question via email at mike at talkingmoneyradio.com or you can go to talkingmoneyradio.com and click on ask Mike a question and you can send your question in there and we'll get uh, we'll pick it up at a, at a future broadcast. We'll be right back. Talking Money is brought to you by Ronald Blue Trust. With nationwide trust capabilities, Ronald Blue Trust provides wealth management strategies and trust services based on biblical principles to help clients make wise financial decisions, live generously, and leave a lasting legacy. With over $11 billion of assets under management and advisement and a network of 16 offices, including Greenville, Ronald Blue Trust serves over 10,000 clients in all 50 states through distinct divisions and offers services across the wealth spectrum in these key areas, financial retirement estate planning, investment management and solutions, charitable giving strategies, personal trust and estate settlement, bill paying, family office services, business consulting, and institutional client services. More information about Ronald Blue Trust can be found at ronblue.com. Ronald Blue Trust is a trademark used by Thrivent Trust Company and Thrivent Trust Company of Tennessee Incorporated, separate affiliated entities. Now back to Talking Money. 
Welcome back to Talking Money. We're coming up in about 20 minutes after the hour. Love to have your questions. Mark Elam, my guest, senior investment strategist with the Ronald Blue Trust out of Atlanta. So I've worked with Mark closely. Been on, he's been on Talking Money a number of times. His old hat, Mark, is just the, you're not a rookie anywhere. You're a seasoned pro now <laughs> at Talking Money. Um, so talking about inflation, and everybody's seen that. Uh, I was even reading some articles uh, in the Greenville News or the, the Weekend Journal, I can't remember which, um, that talked about the people in California saying $5 gas was a deal. <laughs> like, this is a good deal, $5. Everything else is costing more than that. Um, and so everybody feels the inflation, the grocery store, especially the gas pump, because that, that's so obvious. Uh, even and saw in the paper where the Democrats are trying to get Biden to to waive the federal gas, gas tax, tax at least till the end of the year. I think it was eighteen cents a gallon or something like that, which would you know hardly make a dent in what's going on, and we'd lose all kind of revenue, makes the deficit worse, and all kind of other stuff there. There's there's other ways to fix that, uh, and maybe you'll talk about some of that. But let's talk about inflation. Uh, how, what kind of a threat is that to all of us? And you know, because I, I want your crystal ball, your clearest crystal crystal ball, Mark. When's it going to go back down? Got it. <laughs> I, I'll leave that for the end. Yeah, uh, okay. You know, it's interesting where we're talking about inflation because we really haven't had to talk much about inflation for, for decades, really. But here, it's it's perked up here in the last year or so with all the stimulus. So we had fiscal, fiscal stimulus. We had the government you know, sending money because of COVID. Then we had monetary, what we call monetary stimulus, and that's what the Federal Reserve does right. when it lowers yep. interest rates. It buys bonds that to keeps interest rates lower on longer term bonds. So we've had all this stimulus, and guess what? You know, the economy comes roaring back, uh, coming out of COVID. We get vaccines and so forth, and here we have inflation. But on top of that, we have supply shocks, we have disruptions in uh, semiconductors and used cars, and and all of that. So, you know, inflation is is. Uh, it's a bad thing in terms of it just slowly takes a little bit of your money every year. It's like you know, a tax. It's, yeah, it's really like, like a tax. tax. You know, the yeah. old adage, don't put your money under the mattress, you know, yeah. because uh, you leave it there long enough and it's kind of worth less when you pull it out. So it needs to be kind of invested. It needs to be. Mm -hmm. And an investor needs to have some kind of plan that they have a portion of their wealth where it gets long-term growth to, to overcome and to handle and deal with the, the long-term inflation that uh, that's just normal. And today it's higher than higher than normal, and we'll see um, we'll see how how far it goes. Yeah. Well, let's, I'm gonna I'm interrupt you there for a second, so we don't have the caller holding on anymore. Okay. My screen's not working, so I can't see caller, but Paul's waving at me. Yes, me. it's uh, Lee from Marion, North Carolina. Okay. All right. All right. Lee. Good morning, Lee, and welcome to Talking Money. Uh, thank you. Good mor Good morning, and I appreciate your probe. Thank um, you. I have kind of a unique situation, and I'm not sure that you have the answers for it, but I am 66, I have a small IRA account, and I'm also on a VA pension. Uh, I would like to take a disbursement from the IRA account, however, if I take a disbursement, that is counted as income, right. which in turn would reduce my VA pension or perhaps even... Uh, knock it out altogether because the pension is based on total family income or okay. you know what we're bringing in okay so let me ask you this question lee do you, do you uh make any kind of charitable gifts um no we okay. have, we haven't been able to all right 
Do you have any other kind of assets besides that small IRA that you met that are already taxed, or is that your primary source of where to get the money? Uh, well, I, like I said, I, I'm drawing Social Security, and I have the VA pension. Uh, but other than that, we have no other income coming in. Well, we just adopted our 11-year-old great-nephew. Oh, wow. And, okay. And that is kind of what's put us in the situation in that he is now drawing half of my Social Security and that may be enough to put us over right. the uh, limit for the pension. Okay. Well, the, typically the Social Security payments come in as non-taxable, though, uh, as opposed to the withdrawals from the IRA, which are going to be taxable um, for you. And I'm not familiar with the formula that, that they use for the VA pension, uh, how much income you can get before they start reducing it and so forth. But the Social Security uh, should not be taxable to you uh, when it comes in. Did that, did they explain that to you at all from the Social Security uh, Administration? Yeah, that, that that's correct. Yeah, we we don't pay taxes on our Social Security. Yeah, so that that getting that extra Social Security from your was it great nephew that you said? Yes, great nephew. He's that that should not affect the, that should not affect your taxable income um, from uh, from doing that. So I think that um, that you need to uh, yeah. There's uh, Mark saying we got the potential child credit there with a dependent that might give you some savings in taxes. If you if you have some other kind of credits that, that you get because of the child now being a dependent of yours, you could take at least as much out of the IRA as what that credit uh, gave you, and then that would offset the tax and you, it wouldn't affect your VA payment. Okay, that that was my main concern, whether it would affect the um, the VA pension. Or not because yeah. I don't, I'm not sure they look at at taxable taxable income as as much as they do just the total family income. Uh, I would my guess would be taxable income. What's going to show up on your tax return? That's when it's going to show up. At, but I'm not positive about that. I'll do some checking this week, and if we uh, find something out different, uh, we'll follow up um, next week's um, talking money will we'll get you a better answer more a more sure answer than what uh, i'm able to give you right now all right okay that's great i do appreciate all it. right thanks for the call lee right, have a great you. weekend mark elam my special guest today uh, we we're talking about inflation just barely got into it um so you said you know putting your money in a mattress is bad if inflation's going up it's going to be worth less and what are some other factors we need to think about yeah, we need to um, diversification is the best the best tool we have for inflation for the clients that we work with. You know, having your assets in different kinds of things, whether it's real estate or stocks or bonds or have some in cash, have some in money markets that's not subject to interest rate risk. Um, have it those those kinds of things. Those principles are what we talk about with our clients in terms of protecting against inflation. Uh, the other thing I'll say is, you know, the Federal Reserve um, believes that this inflation, you asked about how long is this going to last. Yeah. And so yeah. let me let me try to address that. <laughs> well, they, I know you don't have the real answer. Well, I don't. I mean, and nobody does. <laughs> if you do, then that did. Yeah. OK. <laughs> uh, the Federal Reserve expects this this to peak out in the next couple of months and then we'll end the year uh, at some lower rate, maybe three percent, four percent, two and a half. You know, they would love it to get down to two and a half percent, which is kind of like their target. But. The Federal Reserve expects it to, to do that, to, to, to wane as these supply shocks, as these prices um, slowly kind of creep down. Um, it's not, you know, is, is oil going to keep going up? It's, it may have peaked out here at mm-hmm. 110, 105, wherever it is. 
but um, we feel like in the next couple of months we might see the crest and kind of it slowly, slowly um, diminishing, declining, going the right direction. But so far, you know, we got a, an inflation print last week, 7.9%. So it hasn't peaked yet, but we're expecting here in the next couple of months that it might and then start going the other way. Have you guys had the discussion within your group uh, just about, okay, let's assume Russia is victorious. They take over Ukraine. Now, essentially, the threat is over. I mean, it's done. They, they've taken it over. Uh, it's not good for the Ukrainian people, I don't think. But that's their, the aggression, the fighting, all that should be, should be done. Uh, if, theoretically, uh, what happens then? Does, does all of a sudden now crude oil prices aren't concerned about having any more effect from Russian oil? We've already, that's already gotten through the supply line or we've been able to get it from other places What's uh, what's the thinking there? Yeah, I think the sanctions would probably stay in place. I don't think we're going to lift. So. Like, okay, we're going to yeah. start buying your oil again because yeah. the fighting has stopped. I don't think that'll happen. But you're right. The uncertainty in the global oil market will diminish with mm-hmm. with the decline in, in uh, the conflict. So I think oil would start heading in the right direction, heading lower. We'll get more U.S. production online. It takes, it takes time for that to happen. Um, we might get a, a treaty with Iran. They're working on that. Get Iran back in the game in terms of their oil. That that could help. But yeah, I think uh, if the conflict were to wind down, diminish, uh, oil prices would would somewhat. They're not going to get back to where they were necessarily a year ago. But the other thing, economic growth from all the stimulus is going to slow down too. The Federal Reserve is expecting the economy to start growing, you know, not four percent, but more like two and a half percent. So that'll help. That'll help as well. All right, we're going to continue this conversation with Mark Elam, Senior Investment Strategist at Ronald Blue Trust. Talk a little bit more about the Russia invasion, the Ukraine crisis, that and how it's going to affect you. We'll be right back. Ronald Blue Trust is pleased to sponsor Talking Money. Ronald Blue Trust has distinct divisions that work with clients across the wealth spectrum. Private wealth, everyday steward, family office, and the professional athlete division. The company's largest division, Private Wealth, is designed to provide financial guidance for clients with an investable net worth of a million dollars or higher. Private Wealth advisors can provide advice in many areas, including managing cash flow, growing assets while decreasing debt, overseeing investment portfolios, developing tax-efficient estate and strategic giving plans, and utilizing trust services if needed, all with a big picture in view. The Private Wealth Division has 16 offices across the United States, including Greenville. For more information on Ronald Blue Trust offices and the advisors serving there, please visit ronblue.com. Ronald Blue Trust is a trademark used by Thrivent Trust Company and Thrivent Trust Company of Tennessee Incorporated, separate affiliated entities. Now back to Talking Money. And welcome back to Talking Money. This is Certified Financial Planner Professional Mike Miller, your host. Mark Elam, my guest today, Senior Investment Strategist from Ronald Blue Trust and in our Alpharetta near Atlanta office, uh, talking about the Ukraine crisis, the Russian invasion and how that's affecting. We've we've already talked uh, some about inflation and so forth. Um, if you've got a question for Mark or if you've got a question about something else like Lee did, Mike at TalkingMoneyRadio.com or you can click on the uh, Talking Money radio.com and click on ask mike a question and that's another way to get your question and we'll answer that in a uh, future talking money program so uh, talking about ukraine we talked a little bit off the air and and part of the pieces and and by the way mark we got some really great response from the piece uh the isg 
team put out to clients uh, just talking about this. It was fairly simple, direct, and but it, it gave some comfort and, and perspective. Uh, and one of the things we talked about in there was the the effect of their particular economies uh, and what percentage that is really in the total world economy. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's very small. Russia is is a big producer of some commodities, things like uh, obviously weed and nickel and palladium and so forth, but and mostly oil and energy. Right. But other than that, and Ukraine's economy is very small. So the effect on the global economic system is small uh, in the in the scheme of things. We're not talking about an economy the size of China. You know, China is one, one or two in the world. Uh, when when stuff goes on with China, that's that's significant. Yeah. That's a that big impact. But Russia, Ukraine, not so much. Um, the biggest impact uh, globally, and certainly for Europe especially, is the impact on energy prices. Yeah, and and we don't know how long it lasts, as you talked about before the break. So, what about uh, just geopolitical events? I mean, people get nervous when things are happening in the world, and and there's that uncertainty. Uncertainty always brings the fear in the market, and that's what drives prices so many times. But we can look back at history and and see how different other events have affected the stock market's economy. Uh, give us some perspective there, Mark. Yeah, I will. You know, let, first let me say this: I don't want to minimize what's going on there um, in Absolutely. terms of anything. The humanitarian toll is uh, incredible. It's tragic. Um, you know, all of us are praying for a for a good outcome. It's hard to see what a good outcome would be, but we're certainly praying for some kind of resolution to this. But in terms of just the effect on investments economically and so forth, you know, we, we've looked back at history in our group and said, you know, well, what can we learn from uh, these hiccups, you call them, uh, that have happened? The Cuban Missile Crisis, mm-hmm. for example, the the different wars we've had in the Persian Gulf. I, I remember in 1990 when, uh, when, when the bombs started flying and, and we were trying to get uh, Iraq out of Kuwait. Market took a big drop and then that war was over pretty quickly and, and peace was restored and the market had a nice snapback. History suggests that these geopolitical events can cause short-term stress and an, an impact to, to investments in stocks. But, but if you look six months, a year later, typically, almost in every case, the market has recovered and snapped back and, and kind of gotten, gotten on and, and gotten back to things that really matter in terms of stock prices, in terms yeah. of companies' profits. And, and, Human behavior is kind of one of what ha- what's happening now is important, mm-hmm. and I'm uncertain, and, and I'm gonna you know maybe I need to sell and get into cash, but those these events um, we get past them. Yeah, some companies actually longer term will benefit from a war because they're the ones who make the infrastructure that you got to rebuild. The bombs destroy this stuff. We got to rebuild it. So yeah, one thing that came work. out of this, uh, Germany has said, you know what, we're going to step up our defense spending. And so there will be mm-hmm. defense contractors, defense business, technology firms that really benefit over the next decade from the the upping, the ante, if you will, that the German uh, German economy, German country has decided to you know put more money into defense. There will be companies that benefit from that. Yeah. So when you look at all the different other events that have happened, um, bigger wars, smaller wars, Bigger invasions, smaller invasions, and and different incidences that, that happen over time, um, they they vary in how much they affected the stock market, um, the degree at which it went down, and for how long it stayed down. But but every time they eventually came back up. That's right. Yeah, that's right. There's there's no long term um, structural impact. It's not that this war, this conflict, is going to put us into a recession. The things that really impact stock markets in terms of having big drawdowns, big corrections. Or the is the business cycle, um, the economy recovers, it grows for a while, and then it and then it we have a recession, we have a pullback. We don't see any 
anything remotely close to, you know, kind of causing that kind of sharp correction in the business cycle and what companies are making. So this will be a, you know, our history would suggest this will be a temporary setback, temporary mm-hmm. pullback. I mean, the market was already a little bit correcting before this war even started, you know, right. prices were high. Inflation was a problem. We're pivoting to a tighter monetary policy. So the market was already trying to digest that. And then, and then a conflict breaks out, a war breaks out. And so we'll get through this and the market will get back to keeping its eye on economic growth, corporate profit growth, uh, eventual inflation receding, which is what we expect. And, and we'll see. So if a listener is thinking about uh, either adding more money back into the market at some point, or they are uh, just talking about uh, taking some of their, their current portfolio and rearranging and so forth, um, would, would your opinion be that it's a better time to start now that the S and P's down, what about 10% year to date? Uh, so, uh, that's it's still up a lot from a, a year you know beginning of a year ago but not near as much uh time to start trickling back in i mean there's the timing part said so, okay well we don't want to time it but it's certainly it's better to buy now than it was uh 10 ago that's right it all gets back to what your objective is and what we call your your time your investment time horizon mm-hmm. if this is long-term money that you're investing for the future that you want to see grow over time um, this is as good a time as any, maybe a better time than, than a month ago yeah, to, sure. to trickle that, that cash into the market. But if you're saying, you know what, the market's down, I think I'm going to make a quick buck here when it bounces back and then I'm going to get out having made mm-hmm. that, that's a bad idea. <laughs> I mean, you could be right. You right. might be right, but that's not in our mind. That's not the way to invest in long-term assets kind of in a, with a short-term time frame, trying yeah. to take advantage of a, you know, buy yeah. on the dip and, and then sell. Yeah sell when it goes back up. I think one of the worst things that can happen to an investor is that that works. And, and they, 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 <laughs> they, buy in that, they buy in that dip, it goes up, they sell it, say, I'm good. You know, <laughs> I know what I'm doing. And it's like when you make a great golf shot, oh, this is easy. You know, mm-hmm. this is, well, the next one's not so hot. Uh, and then you, and then, and I've seen this happen, then people start doing it with larger and larger sums of money because they get more confident. And then there's more money in it. Then they make the big mistake and it all drops down and they're like, oh, what was I doing? So time yeah. in the market is just a bad idea. Yeah. If you had set aside some money to buy a car, you know, I'm going to buy a car in a year. Car prices are high right now, but I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait about a year. Meanwhile, I've got this money sitting here. You know what? And the stock market's down. I think I'm going to put my money in that stock market. And then a year from now, it it will be higher for sure. And yeah. I'll have made some money. Right. Yeah. Bad idea. Yeah. Your, your time horizon didn't line up with the nature of the investment. Yeah. So unless unless you have flexibility when to buy that car, you don't have to buy it in twelve months. You could put it off another six months or twelve months if you had to. Then that then it's not as bad of a decision. But yeah, short term money putting it in a long term investment, uh, the two don't the two don't mix. All right, so we just have a couple minutes for our next break, but I want to spend the rest of the time talking about uh, some investments that are a little unique. Um, they're they're not available for everyone to have, but those who are qualified to get into them should be at least considering the private credits, the private equities, those kind of investments that require accredited investors and some of them require even uh, a higher net worth than just the minimum accredited investor. Uh, some things we have available for clients uh, that I at least want people to be aware that they're there. And so we can have a conversation about them later and see there's, there's risk to everything. But um, sometimes uh, we think diversifying, I think, in diversifying into some of these private investments can actually lessen the risk because there again, it's extra diversification. So 
we hear a lot about that private investments <laughs> and people say what is that so what are private investments enlighten us for the yeah. next for the next minute and a half and then we'll yeah take it up later after the break absolutely well when we talk about private investments it's in it's in contrast to public companies so the stocks of of all the companies we're familiar with the gms the home depots the apple computer these are publicly traded companies in other words the public owns them through through owning shares in those companies Contrast that with private firms, they're not publicly traded. They're still owned by maybe the founder, maybe a family, maybe a private equity firm. Mm -hmm. So in Georgia, private company, you immediately think of Chick-fil-A, right? In Florida, you might think of public supermarkets where I had my first job. You know, these companies are, you can't go out and buy the stock of these because they don't, it doesn't exist. They are private firms. And so yeah, it's, I know it's like really. In Publix, it's nice that I know a lot of the employees can buy that's it. Right. So that, in that sense, it's public. But, and we can't go out and buy Chick, uh, a private equity company can't necessarily go buy companies like Chick-fil-A either. That's right. They're, they're fully private. That's yeah. right. The owners have to be willing to, to make some of their, their company available to these private equity firms. And then, then they're available in the private marketplace to, to own a piece of. So it's just private versus public, publicly traded companies owned by the public. That's, uh, that's, that's what we're familiar with. Okay. Private investments, not as much. All right. So there's the basis. We'll, we'll continue this conversation after we get back for the break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes with the last segment of Talking Money. Ronald Blue Trust is pleased to sponsor Talking Money. Ronald Blue Trust has distinct divisions that work with clients across the wealth spectrum. One division is Everyday Steward, which serves clients who are just getting started to those with an investable net worth ranging from $100,000 up to a million. For those desiring objective, biblical principles in their investments, cash flow management, financial planning, which includes retirement, insurance, tax, and estate, and their giving, Ronald Blue Trust's Everyday Steward advisors can serve as their clients' stewardship coaches so they can focus on a living a life of purpose. For more information about Everyday Stewart and the other divisions of Ronald Blue Trust, they can be found at ronblue.com. Ronald Blue Trust is a trademark used by Thrivent Trust Company and Thrivent Trust Company of Tennessee Incorporated, separate affiliated entities. Now back to Talking Money. And we're coming up at about, uh, I guess we're about 12 minutes before the hour, so we got a little extra time than normal for the last segment of Talking Money. Send me an email to Mike at TalkingMoneyRadio.com or go to TalkingMoneyRadio.com and click on Ask Mike a Question and we'll pick up your question in a future broadcast. So Mark Elam, my special guest here, talking about uh, private investments, private credit, which is like a bond, and private equity, which is like a stock. And we talked about the difference before the break. So um, are there, is there really enough... Are there really enough options out there, uh, really enough private companies to invest in? What's the what's the capacity on that side? Sure. Well, something really people don't really understand or realize that, you know, there are only about 5,000 public companies out there in the U.S., public company stocks that one could purchase, 5,000. Yeah. Sounds like a lot. It used it's to be actually, the Wilshire 5,000. Really right. It's not. It's a little under it, that now. It's more yeah. like 4,500, 4, yeah. truth right. be told. Whereas on the private side, private companies that are not yet public, there's over a million private companies with, with more than a thousand employees, a significant number of private firms. Now yeah. we can't invest in all of those private firms, obviously, but we there's a, there's a number of them that we can invest in. So in our minds, it's just a matter of, there's a bigger pond over here that we can get access to in these private firms. Why would we not fish over here in this pond mm -hmm. uh, as, and keep ourselves in just the, the publicly traded companies? So why do, why would a private company want to just keep it private and go into this market to get, capital versus just going to the public market and, and issuing stock. Mm -hmm. 
Well, our capital markets are quite efficient and there are ways for private companies to access uh, markets for capital, whether it's private equity firms or private credit firms. And there's, there's ways for them to get the capital that they need to grow. And they don't have to put up a lot of with the red tape and bureaucracy around quarterly earnings projections and quarterly earnings statements and SEC filings and all of that when it comes to being a publicly traded company. There's only so much they can say about their business. They're restricted from how much they can give away around uh, how things are going and earnings and revenue and all that. So staying private, they're, they're, they have ability in terms of governance, in terms of kind of keeping their eye on the ball, mm-hmm. investing for the long term or building their business for the long term. Some private companies would argue that, you know, it's, it's much easier to do that um, right. in the private Right. Uh, arena than the public Fewer SEC arena. regulations and Ab- so forth. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So uh, um, obvious question the listener's going to have is, why would I do this? Is, am I, you mentioned diversification. So you're diversifying away from the public market. So you're not going to see the, the same kinds of ebbs and flows like you would on the public stock market. Um, but uh, you know, am I going to make any more money? Can I make any more money? Well, the first thing we'd like to talk about, the first driving reason is diversification, as yeah. you mentioned. There's just more companies over there. Why would we not want to complement what we're doing in the publicly traded marketplace with with companies? Why would we not want to supplement with that with some private firms if we can get at those firms and yeah. invest in them through vehicles that, that make sense? So yeah, diversification is the main the main reason. So even if you made the same amount of money, even if you made then the it's same, still a good idea because you're diversifying. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. However, over time, historically, the, the returns in the private with private firms have been a little bit better than the returns in the public marketplace. Not twice as good, not three times as good, but a little bit better. We're not talking get rich quick here. No, we're not. Um, But they've been attractive. They've been attractive enough to handle the, what we call the illiquidity or the less liquid nature of investing in those private firms, which which is one of the negative talk about. Yeah. We definitely want to talk about that part as well. Cause what are you giving up when you, okay, you got that potential of making some higher return, but it doesn't come without at least some negatives. Mm-hmm. Private equity firms, typically they're investing, they're buying a portion of a company and you as an investor kind of invest alongside with them. So that money's going to be tied up in the business and, and in that business growing and the company's investing it, building factories or build, building their business, built, buying other companies. And so the the arrangement is if I invest in a private company, I'm willing to kind of leave that money there and, and be kind of tied up in a vehicle that's investing in those companies. And, I, and I'm not going to change my mind in six months, a year, whatever, and bring my money out. You so, have to really look at it like you are investing in your own company like, that's right. and you're not going to invest in your own company and six months later, take your own money back out of that company. You're going to give it time to do its thing, to to establish, to, to take whatever capital, because these are uh, established businesses who are taking that money and, and expanding with it or doing something. So you got to give it time to, to work to where you're going to get the, re, the reward for the money that you put in there. Right. You need to think about investing as an owner, as an owner of a little right. piece of that business. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I'm the owner. I'm trusting the management. I'm trusting that they've got a good plan, a good business. And then over time, let's see how that investment works out. What's a different kind of liquidity? Because you talk about, okay, they're illiquid, but there is, uh, there are some different ways of getting money out before the thing, if you, if you had to. Mm-hmm. Well, there are different kinds of funds in the private arena. Um, there are so-called evergreen funds where you can invest into, and they might have redemption provisions where, okay, you want to take your money out after a period of time on a quarterly basis, you could pull money out. So, uh, we've come a long way in terms of there being some liquidity Mm -hmm. in these kinds of investments. It used to be that your money would be tied up for 10, 12 years 
and then you would gradually get a return as companies were sold within that fund. But that's changed and evolved again to make it easier for clients to invest in those through these evergreen structures where structures where there is, you know, after maybe a year, you can start getting your money out if you, if you needed to. But there's but there's others that don't that don't have that kind of liquidity, right? Right. And there's so you, others that are still traditionally tied up in the ten to twelve years, and and you'll invest over a period of a couple of years, and then after about five or six years, you'll start getting return in terms of some of those companies being sold, and you're getting some of your money back, and then the fund might wind down after ten or twelve years. Yeah, I thought the, as I've been learning more about this over the years, uh, to to learn how these private equity companies invest. Uh, you initially might think, okay, you give them um, half a million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is, two million, and and you say, okay, they're going to invest it right away. But they really don't do that because they don't necessarily have companies that they're ready to invest in all at once. Yeah, there's typically an investment period for right. two to three years, and they're they're finding firms that they can invest in, founders willing to sell, firms willing to sell parts of themselves, and so they get that money invested over time, over a couple of years. And then that money goes in those firms and grows. And then after five or six or years, they start seeing a return from it in terms of some of the companies that they've invested in start being sold or start selling parts of themselves. And you'll start getting some of the distributions from mm-hmm. that fund um, in those kind of a, we call that a capital call or a drawdown structure. Okay. So that's on the equity side. Talk a little bit more about the the credit side. So mm-hmm. people invest in, we talked about U.S. Treasuries and CDs, we corporate bonds, you have tips, you've got all different kinds of bonds. But if you want to diversify away from that public market and and, and perhaps even be a little less potentially interest rate sensitive, mm-hmm. um, talk more about just what happens in a, in a credit market. Sure. So just like the public companies uh, that are listed on the stock exchanges, borrow money. Private firms can borrow money too. Chick-fil-A may want to borrow some money. Public supermarket mm-hmm. may want to borrow some money. So there are firms that will lend those companies money, not banks, but private credit firms, we call them. And so investors can invest in in a private credit vehicle, which is nothing more than just a collection of loans that have been made to private firms. The nice thing about those loans is for whatever reason, they're set up to where the rates are floating. Yeah. So uh, you may borrow, company X may borrow at 6%, but then rates trend up, go higher. Well, guess what? That rate has now gone to 6 or 7 or 8%. And so I, as an investor, don't have interest rate risk in the sense that I've I've locked in a rate at 6% and now I have to hold that investment. Uh, that that rate will float higher in private loans. Yeah. So, and, and typically, because I understand the, the way these are structured and the less cost, less hassle, that a company has, they, because one of the questions I had when I was first learning about this, how can they pay that much higher than market rates? What's, what's the deal? Cause the, my, in my financial planning brain, it's like, okay, there's more risk here somewhere. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure there's not more risk to get uh, this, this potentially higher return. Yeah. These are growing firms that are willing to pay, you know, what we would think of as higher rates than, than you might normally think would be attractive and they're willing they're willing to borrow there because not going through all the hassle of publicly listing and publicly um, issuing bonds having credit ratings on on their company they don't have to go through all of that they can go to a private credit um, firm and borrow money and typically they're in a, they're in a rush to kind of get that money paid back because it's expensive money but they're they're investing into their business they're borrowing to to make investments and they get a return on that investment they get yeah. that loan paid down pretty quickly. And of course their plan is to make a whole lot more uh, rate of return uh, 
from the business growth that they had over what the, the credit would have cost them. That's right. So as a private investor going into this, so my um, my normal advice for somebody, it, you've got to have a portfolio of at least $3 million, maybe something even higher than that before you even look at something like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the thoughts uh, from you, Mark, on what percentage somebody might consider on the private credit or private equity side in your total liquid right. investable? Portfolio. Yeah, well, there are rules around uh, who, first of all, who can invest right. in these. Um, uh, accredited investor is kind of an SEC definition, and that's typically someone that has a million dollars to invest investable assets, not mm-hmm. the value of their house, whatever, but their their portfolio. About a million dollars is what the SEC says. Okay, you have enough money where we think you can handle the illiquidity and so forth. So someone um, has a portfolio, say they have a million dollars. We wouldn't say, you know what, load up in private's with half of your portfolio, we would yeah. say, you know, more, more in the 10 to 20% of right. your portfolio could be in that less liquid, illiquid portion, private investments and put the rest in more publicly traded investments that are liquid that can be turned into cash if you need it. Yeah. yeah. And large the portfolio, like a, like a, an endowment that's a, you know, hundred billion dollar endowment, they, they could afford to put a higher percentage in that because they've got a lot of other monies available to them that's that right. are very liquid. Uh, so you want to be careful with this, but I think, and then there are other some other options that are available for I think five million net worth and above that are are some venture capital things that are there that are available for clients who even have uh, want to get into to some more uh, and different kinds of investments to try to bump up the return. But it's this risk and everything, right? That's right. All right. So eight hundred five eight eight seven five two six is where you catch me if you want to ask some questions further. We appreciate you listening to Talk Money, Mark. Thank you for joining me. Always a pleasure. All right, we'll talk to you next week for the next Talking Money. Mm-hmm.